Before we get into the podcast proper, some quick plugs. There's a lot happening. The 8pm quiz, for starters, well, after some confusing events, which I won't go into now, that's been rescheduled to a schedule which will stick very definitely. So if you enjoy a pub quiz, but one on a video live stream, get a few people together at yours this coming Tuesday night, the 17th of January, for the 8pm Quiz of the Year 2022 Part 2. Is 2022 because this is the, the second half of questions about the year that's just been. Uh, One round, by the way, will consist of questions about Georgia, just for apostrophe Pong, because he's currently living in Tbilisi. So pour some drinks, be ready to play at 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. The link's on my YouTube channel and everywhere. So that's this Tuesday, the 17th, and then subsequent episodes, Thursday the 19th, and Thursday the 26th, which is Australia Day. Now that's also, when my current crowdfunder ends, the 9pm Hardware Refresh 2023, details of that in the podcast proper. It's all intertwingled with the aforementioned confusing events. But go to, I mean, the 9pm edict.com slash refresh 2020-2023 for that. You can work that out. Uh, and finally, there is a summer episode coming up, a quick summer special guest episode of this podcast. Uh, I'll tell you about that in the housekeeping. Off we go. The following episode of the 9pm Edict contains strong language, politics, computer stories that old people will remember, and disturbing sexual imagery. Sunday, the 15th of January, 2023. Yes, 2023. Happy New Year. The Premier of New South Wales once dressed as a Nazi and people are losing their minds. It's the perfect start to a new year. Well, it's just me today, so let's get straight into it. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. This is the 9pm The Right Stuff with some bonus fascists. Yes, welcome to 2023, a year that will definitely be better than the last three, which is more or less what we've said every year since about 2016, which is when David Bowie died, amongst other people. Well, for me, uh, the year has already presented some amusing challenges, just one of which has been Prince Harry talking about the time he got frostbite on his penis. My penis was oscillating between extremely sensitive and borderline traumatised. The last place I wanted to be was Frostnipistan. I'd been trying some home remedies, including one recommended by a friend. She'd urged me to apply Elizabeth Arden cream. My mum used that on her lips. You want me to put that on my todger? It works, Harry. Trust me. I found a tube, and the minute I opened it, the smell transported me through time. I felt as if my mother was right there in the room. And I took a smidge and applied it down there. What I love about that clip is that young Harry Windsor, a soldier in Afghanistan, uh, has frostbite of the penis, and while he's rubbing cream into it, not just any vitamin E cream or moisturiser, whatever, but Elizabeth Arden, that's the brand you want for, for dealing with frostbite. He's rubbing it in, 
and thinking of his mother, who, who, who of course, was Princess Diana. So that's not complicated at all, is it? And then you think a little further. Frostbite, I want you to imagine this. Here's what Wikipedia has to say. I'll riff off this a bit. Frostbite, sure, a skin injury caused by extreme low temperatures. And what happens is the skin or other tissues, you know, in the layers of the, the body there, on the outer layers, freeze, actually freeze, goes sub-zero. So it might kill them, it might not. It probably will kill those tissues. It can recover. But here's the thing. Well, one of the things, it normally affects the extremities, right? Your face is exposed, you, you're not got proper gloves or socks or boots or whatever. So frostbite normally affects fingers, toes, nose, ears, cheeks, chin areas. While it's not completely unknown, frostbite of the willy is not a thing that is you know, particularly common. So you have to wonder why, of all the bits of the prince, all of the royal parts that that might be affected by frostbite in the mountains of Afghanistan in winter, why did he have his dick out? I mean, is this... Well, you know, it's the army. You know what soldiers are like. <laughs> well, I know what soldiers are like. But here he is, dick out... Thinking of a, a highness, her royal highness, um, and then you you think about what frostbite actually does. I mean, sure, cold and tingling or numbing as the the tissues uh, get affected and and die. That's what happens. Um, but then as it it progresses through first degree, second degree, third degree, and up to fourth degree uh, frostbite, you should check out. The, the internet for photos of this stuff. It's really pretty because eventually everything go first sort of blisters and swells up and then it sort of like blackens and dies and rots and, you know, then eventually you have to amputate that. So imagine, if you will, Prince Harry's swollen, blistering Membrum virilis, I think I've got the Latin right, his dick, swollen and blistering, and he's rubbing cream into it while thinking of Princess Diana, his mother. Now, there is a television commercial for Elizabeth Arden Cosmetics, right? That's it, right there. Imagine if he'd been up there by himself and had to do what is called auto-amputation. Not much of a spare heir to the throne if he's cut his dick off. Although, you know, there's other ways of getting getting uh, the spermatozoa wriggling, 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 wriggling all the way up a princess's pathways. I, I, that sets the scene uh, for the year, really. I do note that uh, Prince Harry's book, Spare, uh, is the biggest non-selling, uh, sorry, the biggest selling non-fiction book ever published by Penguin, and penguins don't even read. And it, still they know about frostbite, I suppose. 
it's interesting stuff. The news cycle certainly hasn't finished with uh, uh, Prince Harry yet. Hey, here's, here's the other irony. We're talking about his Willie, but that's his brother's name, right? It's Harry. Maybe we should call it his Harry. There are a lot of people on, on the internet, uh, especially on the Twitter, and we'll come to Twitter eventually, of course, uh, saying that, that we're, we're criticising Harry terribly unfairly here, this, this sort of flack we get, that Princess Diana would never have got this vicious treatment in the media. I think, but, but mate, were any, were any of you people there at the time? Did you see what happened? I suppose they weren't. I suppose that, the, that most people don't know about the horrendous treatment that Princess Diana got. Uh, someone uh, with the Twitter handle Fleet Street Fox said, replace the word Harry in every tweet with the word Diana and then see how it sounds. And uh, Ben, whose handle is Cinema Shoebox, replied with what I think is is one of the best tweets of the year so far. Sure. Diana S. Truman orders the use of nuclear weapons against the Empire of Japan. Bet she would have. Diana had a vicious streak. Hello, it's the edict. <laughs> Welcome to 2023. Well, the New South Wales Premier is in damage control this morning, admitting he wore a Nazi costume to his 21st birthday party 20 years ago. Um, if you listen to his press conference yesterday, he talked about how this had weighed on his conscience for a long time. But he didn't fess up until he knew he was caught. And, and look, he wasn't a child. He was 21. Within a few years, he was president of the Young Liberals. And within eight years, he was in Parliament. Yes, Nine News. He certainly was. Dominic Perrottet in Parliament for a number of years... Now he's Premier of the, uh, the great state of New South Wales. Uh, and uh, coming up in just two and a bit months is a state election and news that 20 years ago he wore a Nazi uniform uh, is dominating the news cycle as well. The latest I have on this essentially is that uh, he's fronting reporters saying that, uh, yeah, he did, he rented the outfit... Uh, several colleagues had contacted him to offer their support uh, because this first came to light uh, because Transport Minister David Elliott, a member of his own government, uh, raised it, saying, oh, this could be a problem. Yeah, it could be a problem, mate. Thank you very fucking much. And the relationship between David, David Elliott, one of the most useless uh, state government ministers New South Wales has ever had. Uh, he was police minister, you may remember him. He was the one who uh, who was uh, happy for the cops to strip search children for drugs. Um, and uh, then he became transport minister and he was the one who was incapable of negotiating with the unions over uh, the operation of the new interstate city fleets to replace the purple trains uh, that operate up here in the Blue Mountains of elsewhere. And rah, 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 rah. It, it's, he's a bit of a crash or crash through kind of guy. He's not standing for re-election uh, in his seat at the uh, forthcoming election because... Uh, well, the party doesn't want him, basically. He's a bit of a cunt. And it turns out that recently, 
Well, the, the government's idea is to have some sort of a thing they're calling a cashless gaming card to help uh, deal with problem gambling in, in poker machines and at the TAB and, and so on, and to help prevent money laundering, which is one of the primary uses of, of poker machines in pubs and clubs in the great state of New South Wales. And one does have the feeling that David Elliott is, is connected with that industry in some way because he is found to have uh, inappropriately... Uh, Oh no! I'm oh no! I'm thinking of the uh, uh, the police commissioner who was found uh, to have dealt inappropriately uh, with the ownership of a race course when the police are meant to be investigating, you know, corruption in the racing industry. Not that not that there's any corruption in the horse racing industry, as uh, as I'm sure you all know. So anyway, uh, Dominic Perrottet wants to introduce some of that. That's part of their election platform. And now David Elliott, who I'm sure, when he finishes being in Parliament very soon, will have nothing to do with the racing or gambling industry whatsoever. Nah, he does. So, (laughs) hey, Dom, yeah, they know about the Nazi uniform. And how did they find out about it, I wonder? Putting aside uh, the New South Wales state political aspects of this, wearing a Nazi uniform, instant condemnation, losing a job. Now, before I get into this, it is absolutely the case that wearing a Nazi uniform in some sort of social occasion is and should be just condemned it's like no that's not a thing that in the year of our lord 2023 that that we do except in certain contexts and i'll get to that but first i'll riff off a tweet uh by pat stokes philosopher and uh, uh musician pat stokes friend of the pod who tweeted all else aside, where in 2003, 20 years ago, did Perrottet even get a Nazi uniform from? And I responded to that by finding one today in 90 seconds. I found at uh, a place called Warwick Firearms and Militaria in Victoria, who are uniform hire specialists for TV and film productions, four different Nazi uniforms that you could hire. One of them was indeed a World War II SS officer. Uh, and another one was uh, Africa Corps trooper. Um, I forget what the other two were. You can, you can link through, as usual. Links to everything on the, on the podcast website. And these businesses are not new. I mean, you try... I mean, you need a Nazi uniform to do The Sound of Music. For fuck's sake, they're being, they're escaping from the Nazis. You need Nazi uniforms to do the producers, the fantastic uh, uh, Mel Mel Brook. I was about to say Mel Blank. No, he's the voiceover artist for all of the Warner Brothers cartoons. The Mel Brooks film, the producers, and so on and so forth. Uh, and here's something to fuck with people's heads. The ABC used to have tons of Nazi uniforms because, of course, they had a wardrobe department and they did period drama and it's a staple of satirical comedy to represent evil by someone 
in a Nazi uniform. So, of course, there are Nazi uniforms around. And then people on Twitter came back to me and said, oh, yeah, but that's now you can look it up on the internet, but back then, oh, no, you know. No, not at your corner fucking dress up in a penguin onesie or, or sparkly witch costume, you know, or the, the sexy nurse outfit for Halloween. No, but in either something catering for the film industry or a military place. And I know of and knew of and still can find uh, historical uniform shops for collectors, for theatre productions, for film productions and so on, where you could, get, where you could find them and, and often in the window because those Hugo Boss uniforms, if they're actually originals, are just sure if you want to make a comprehensive collection of World War II stuff, that does include... Nazi Germany. All right, it's not, it's not tasteful, but, you know, what do you feel about gun collectors? Historical weapons. Oh, it's guns, it's terrible. Well, yeah, yeah sure, they're also pieces of history. I'm ambivalent about that, but my question here really is not, oh, where do you get one? So, well, it, it, it's just a piece of clothing, and that's a hint. Sure, it is, it is dumb, it is lame, it is offensive, whatever, to wear a Nazi uniform at a kind of ordinary social occasion. I, you know, obviously in, in a historical context, that's a thing that happens. But so what? So what? Criticise a politician for their policies. Some dumb thing he did years ago. So fucking what? Why is it still going days later in the news cycle? Well, the answer to that is it's January and there's fuck all else happening. And that's what's getting such a run, right? Now, does it reflect on his judgment? Sure, but it's a thing 20 years ago. If more turns up, all right, we can start to question that. But for fuck's sake, can we look at politics on the basis of its policies. Now, there's a lot of hypocrisy around the reporting, of course, that some of the, the people supporting him are saying, oh, but but he was young and foolish at 21 when Indigenous kids from the age of fucking, what is it, 12, 11 or something in some states are treated as adults for the purposes of crime and locked in jail. So there's a bit of racist hypocrisy there. Nazis are up for that too, I suppose. But again, so what about the costume? Let's look at the costumes people wear. And in the case of this party, the theme was uniforms. Broadly speaking, a very large proportion of uniforms are, well, you know, problematic, right? Even things which aren't uniforms. The Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper killed everyone or kills everyone. Dressing as the Grim Reaper is fine. All right, so that's a, that's a mythical thing. Fair point. All right, let's dress as some historical figures. Genghis Khan, uh, a gangster like Al Capone, although he, he was a bit more with the, the accounting than with the gunfire. Uh, Ned Kelly. Ned Kelly was a fucking murdering thief. No, oh, no, 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 part of great Australian tradition, I suppose, because he's white as well. No, Hitler was white as well. All right, that's not a good argument. Uh, Mao Zedong. Millions of people dead. Stalin, millions of people dead. Winston Churchill, 
former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and Great Britain and Northern Ireland, etc., etc., responsible for many, 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 many deaths, including a whole lot of our Aussies, our Anzacs at Gallipoli in that ill-fated, ill-judged and possibly ill-eagle um, invasion of Turkey in World War I, uh, and then look up the Bengal famine during World War II sometime and what Winston fucking Churchill did there. One might call it genocide. But, oh, no, it's fine to dress as Winston Churchill. It's fine to dress, etc., etc. We, I mean, we dress children to go to parties as pirates. You know what pirates did? I mean, that's that's kind of literally the rape and pillage. It's not the oh, 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 parrot on my shoulder stuff. For fuck's sake. There's a kind of Nazi exceptionalism which is kind of the reverse of how we normally think of exceptionalism, right? That exceptionalism is, well, we or whoever you're talking about, we're the good guys. We're, we're special. What we do is saving the world for peace and democracy, not illegally invading countries in, in West Asia. Oh, we'd never do that. We would never, ever do that. We'd never bomb the fuck out of Germany in World War Two or Japan or various other places for that. And, oh, no, that's that's not terrorism. <laughs> if we keep putting Nazis into an entirely separate category, then we're actually giving a free pass to anyone who's just a bit less problematic, right? Such as, I, I don't know, like Australia, because we take refugees and put them into concentration camps with indefinite and uh, extra-legal... Uh, uh, indefinite detention. But that's all right. It's where it's strong borders. I want to take you back now to, very briefly, to the year 2008. There was an artist, uh, photographer named, well, uh, artist, yeah, Daniel Etick. He decided to do modern versions of historical figures in his paintings. And one of them was of Adolf Hitler. And Hitler is standing there. In, in a black T-shirt and uh, black slacks, looking moodily at the camera, hair swept down a bit over one eye like he's a, in a Britpop band, as a troubled young artist, which, which, I mean, he certainly was a young artist, and oh boy, fucking was he troubled. But you look at that, and if you did not know that that man is one of the greatest murdering cunts in the history of human human beings, you would think, yeah, that's an interesting young artist. Look through, have a look. And back then, this got a lot of flack. Oh, how dare you show Hitler in this positive light? I mean, that's that's kind of the point of the piece of art, right? And back then, in 2008, I wrote an essay, and I here's a bit of it. I said, Whatever we see Hitler on TV, any of the Nazis, he's, he's rendered in slow motion and we hear the droning, threatening music. It's in black and white. Um, you know, think of any History Channel documentaries on the Nazis because History Channel's kind of about 108% of the airtime is documentaries about the Nazis. The message is incredibly unsubtle. This man is a monster, right? The thing is, though... Yeah, Hitler was a monster. 
But if we ever need to deal with another charismatic, psychotic, genocidal maniac, there, there won't be some invisible orchestra playing the theme tune from Jaws so we can spot him. We'll have to figure it out for ourselves. And that will be tough because just as Hitler and his mates used the best media technology and techniques of their age to craft their public image, think of the films, think of the rallies, think of the radio addresses, any new Hitler-esque politician will do the same. Their PR agency will craft an image we can relate to. If they're a rising star of politics, well, hell, the magazines will have photo shoots, be on the front cover of GQ uh, and Women's Weekly uh, and well, TikTok videos. Uh, I mean, just look what's happening now. How are you going to tell the difference between a rising Hitler and just some crank. Because, I mean, they all thought Hitler was a bit of a crank, didn't they? Trump 2024. There you go. Hitler, without a doubt, ordered one of the greatest genocides in history. He even wrote about his plans beforehand. He made no secret of it. But he was also legally elected Chancellor of Germany by ordinary people like years before World War II broke out. And the ordinary people of Germany pretty much aren't monsters. Neither are the people of any country. So what happened? How is that image managed? And I don't think the problem with Hitler was that he had people in a uniform of brown shirts. I wrote that 15 years ago, almost to the day, actually. Now, today, in 2023, it seems to me that we need to be more vigilant, as I say, more than ever, about the rise of fascism. Because when it comes to the real danger, it won't be some skinny fuckwit being a dickwad at his 21st birthday party. Back to a a sort of lighter angle on that, the shovel, uh, the satirical site tweeted a lovely piece that said, yeah, Scott Morrison says that for his 21st birthday, he dressed up as an airline pilot and a hairdresser and a welder and a builder and a truck driver and a cricketer and a football player and a barman. Uh, Scott Morrison, remember him? And finally, Lex Plan said on Twitter, it is written that every New South Wales premiere has to be brought down by something more fatally stupid than the last one. To which I say, one can only hope. There's quite a bit of housekeeping this episode, so I'm going to split it into two bits. This is bit one. The next episodes, righto, okay. I am sliding in a couple of episodes during what remains of summer as a kind of uh, summer special guest episode mini tiny weenie series. And next week, well, in just a few days, I'm recording with Elise Thomas. She's uh, been on the pod before. She's a, a freelance journalist, but also an open source intelligence analyst with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. We are going to look at a number of things, including um, how can you tell 
whether some of the open source intelligence analysts, the OSINT analysts that are purporting to tell you about, say, the war in Ukraine, are in fact disinformation operatives or not. She's been looking at that a bit. Uh, there's lots of other things to talk about as well. Uh, if you're a supporter with trigger words or a conversation topic for that episode, I need them quickly. I need them by Monday, the 16th of January, which is, which is tomorrow at 9pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. So get them through to me by Monday night so we know what we're talking about. That episode will appear uh, late in the week sometime. Also, the quiz. Oh, I Yes, I've, I've hinted at the front of the pod about the, uh, the problems with getting the quiz happening. Just a very quick reminder then. The next one, Tuesday the 17th of January for the 8pm quiz of the year 2022 part two to get those questions out of the way. So it's Tuesday the 17th, Thursday the 19th and Thursday the 26th of January uh, for the 8pm quiz episodes. Go to my YouTube channel um, uh, to find the links or to, you know, you know, you know where to find this stuff. It'll be a, it'll be a lot of fun, I reckon, uh, especially now that uh, I've got the new computer and I won't be distracted as much. Now, this podcast is, of course, uh, made, that new computer was made possible by you, the, the generous listener, and I, I thank you so much. Uh, thank you, especially this episode, to regular supporters Carletta Abianak, Mark Cohen, who says, have a cold beer and here's a bit for the hardware refresh. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. And Simon Harris, thank you, as always. And thank you to the people who've pledged their support to my current crowdfunding campaign, the 9pm Hardware Refresh. More on that later. But I will say now, if you want to click through while you're listening, the 9pm edict.com slash refresh 2023. Uh, and uh, you can see what is happening there because things are moving quite quickly. Time for some trigger words. As uh, <laughs> that was a bit lame, wasn't it? Hey, trigger words. As uh, regular listeners will know, uh, this is the glass jar of transparency. It contains folded up pieces of paper. Each folded up piece of paper contains a word sent in by a supporter in the hope that will it will trigger a conversation. So let's have a look, see what we can find. Bruce Hardy has sent in the word speed run. Thank you, Bruce, and thank you for your support. Speedrun, yeah, this is huh, this is the thing in the gamer world, and it it's gamer world. It feels a bit strange. Gaming is is as an industry something which generates more revenue than the movie industry. There are more people, uh, well, the people spending more money on it, but it's. It's a mainstream thing. It's it's silly to talk about the gamer world as opposed to you know the sports person world or the music listening world or or something. But you know we all need categories. We all need stereotypes. But speedrun is a term from that, right? It means uh, to to go through the narrative of a game as quickly as possible. And I I guess there's a challenge in that. Um, 
I mean, I don't know what the hurry is. Uh, I mean, if a game has a well-written narrative and and uh, has an interesting experience or you need skills to survive, say, in a first-person shooter game, then that that's a thing you can, can develop. But doing it as fast as possible... Again, I suppose... See, I'm not, I, <laughs> I'm not in that category of gamer as such. I mean, it's surprising... I used to do a lot of gaming in, in the old sense of, of the word. For a period, I was president of the Adelaide University Wargaming Club. Back in those days, of course, it was on big paper maps with, with little cardboard counters on, on hexagons. See, Justin Warren, more hexagons. Um, and, and I remember the very earliest text-based computer games like Advent, short for adventure, uh, but of course programs could only have six character long names. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a thing. Um, and pure, well, pure speed wasn't an option. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there is that I have, I am really the worst person to talk to about this because I, I have no modern opinion. That said, little games like um, the Untitled Goose Game, where you're a goose and you're causing havoc and you have to solve the puzzles. I suppose, yeah, if you know, you're working through it, you work out how to get the keys out of the, the farmer's pocket and all of those things. Once you've worked out what individual process is needed for each challenge in the game, then maybe it is. Sure, maybe there's a challenge of going through it as quickly as you can. It's not something that appeals to me. And it's not something that appeals to me in, in life. Like, do you want to speed run through life? Do life as p fast as possible. All the experiences, quickly, quickly, quickly. Uh, <laughs> live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse, as a friend of mine once said to me. And he indeed did live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. So uh, maybe there's something in that. But take, for example, uh, the tours of Sydney Harbour which are in a really fast boat. And once it gets going, that boat starts weaving from side to side at high speed and throwing up water everywhere. And like, what, the, what the fuck is that for? Like, if you want to see the beauty of Sydney Harbour, and it is beautiful, people who, who live in and near Sydney kind of take it for granted quite often. And we say, wait, wait, this is actually, you know, the largest natural deep water harbour in the world, and it's fucking beautiful. Um, why would you want to go through that as fast as possible in a way that makes it way, way more difficult to enjoy the view and almost impossible to take photographs of it? So you go, eh, well, yeah, yeah, action sport, shove it all up your ass. Thank, uh, thank you, Bruce Hardy. That certainly triggered a conversation. Uh, oh dear. Uh, there's quite a few trigger words to get through in future episodes. I, As I said last time, I need to work out a way of dealing with that. Uh, but uh, quite a bit to, to talk about today. Uh, so that's, that's the one for now. Thank you, Bruce Hardy. <coughs> Elephant stamp time! Elephant stamp time. On many episodes of this podcast, I award elephant stamps of approval. 
for excellence in the category of thinking. And I have just one for you today, and it goes to the, uh, <laughs> the organisation called The Right Stuff, which was founded in August last year, but which seems to be struggling. Uh, if you missed The Right Stuff, here's a, a two-minute, 20-second introduction. Hey guys, I'm Ryan. I've got to tell you about something I am so excited to announce. A dating app for all of us conservatives. It's called The Right Stuff and it's launching this September. What I love most about it is that it's invite only, so not just anyone can join. First of all, it's free to use. And for my ladies, you'll never have to pay because we all get premium subscriptions for simply inviting a couple friends. Gentlemen, if you want access to premium, that's on you. And by the way, those are the only two options, ladies and gentlemen. The Right Stuff is all about getting into the right dating pool with people who share the same values and beliefs as you. You'll start off by building your perfect profile, no pronouns necessary. We want you to put your best foot forward, which includes your favorite photos of yourself doing what you love or being with the people you love. Our prompts give you the opportunity to let people know various sides of you, so remember, be authentic and creative. We're sorry that you've had to endure years of bad dates and wasted time with people that don't see the world our way, the right way. Okay, once you're in the app, you have the ability to scroll through profiles of people in your area, but you can also adjust the settings to see anyone, anywhere. Once you've liked a couple people, you're ready to post a date. You can either keep your options open and post it for everyone to see, or just post it to the people you've liked. This concept is all about getting you out there and getting you on dates. So you'll go to the bottom navigation, click on dates, and then you'll go to the top right-hand corner and hit the plus button. From there, you can create your ideal date. You choose the time and place, and you also have the luxury of choosing the dates that you would like to go on. In the app, you can see everyone who's liked your profile. And if you like them back, you can start chatting with them. It's that simple. So if you're a young conservative looking to amp up your dating life, go to joinrightstuff.com to gain early access. We need to get back to the right way of dating. See you there. I uh, presumably don't need to tell you that every single person who appeared in that video was white. The white stuff. Uh, and not just white. Uh, I mean, extremely middle class. And, and look, all the guys looked, you know, slightly rugged and Midwestern conservative. And all the women, well, all the women were just like uh, Ryan there. Ryan with two ends. Uh, okay, I'm in no position to criticise people for their names. Uh, but Ryan, with two ends, um, was was wearing a, a, a loose white blouse and white jeans with an oh-so-tiny rip at the knee and uh, the the usual Karen-esque hairstyle. Uh, so that was the right stuff, or the white stuff. Uh, Ryan, by the way, with two ends, um, is Ryan McEnany. Uh, she's the sister of uh, Kaylee McEnany, uh, McEnany, spelt K-A-Y-L-E-I-G-H, of course, uh, who was a former White House press secretary. And and I, I don't need to tell you for which president, do I? So that was The Right Stuff, a dating app for the right wing. 
founded in uh, August, uh, funded by Peter Thiel, uh, founder of um, uh, surveillance software site Palantir, before that one of the creators of PayPal, uh, along with um, the patron cunt of this podcast, Elon Musk, uh, the, the man who, who takes the blood of young people to keep him young. Um, yeah, yeah, look, it's a whole thing. Anyway... Turns out it's failing and failing big time. Um, it managed to get 40,000 downloads in October. By December, November, December, that's down to kind of 11,000 downloads. Now, I don't know how much you, dear listener, pay attention to the, the numbers and mechanics of online uh, apps, but a few tens of thousands is not exactly what you'd call a success. Uh, there was uh, an intense verification process. You had to be invited, so someone already using the app had to invite you, and then apparently they would look at your online presence. Uh, some bloke complained that uh, he was he downloaded the app, got a package sent to become an ambassador, and then two months later still wasn't accepted onto the app. Uh, that was uh, posted uh, in December. Uh, now the idea was that they didn't, you know, they didn't want the liberals. They didn't want the libs. This is for young conservatives. Um, but then they launched it in the Washington area because, of course, politically aware people. But Washington D.C. is like they're all, they're civil servants, public servants. That it's a very left wing town. Uh, so someone there said, well, how am I going to get a, an invite from somewhere around here? I mean, this this is a heavily liberal area. Who's who's going to be using the app to invite me? Uh, and then even months after its launch, it was only available uh, on Apple's uh, app store, on the Google Play store. Though it wasn't, it wasn't there. Uh, so anyone using Android uh, couldn't join the site. Um in this article that I've linked to from uh, wherever I did, it, it just says, representatives for the right stuff did not respond to requests for comment. No, I, I bet they didn't. Um, and here's, here's the big one. When you joined to create your profile, you were given a prompt to finish this sentence. January 6th was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there, then there was a conspiracy theory going round uh, that this, in fact, was a, a honey trap by the FBI to find people who supported the the January sixth insurrection. Um, and it's like, no, 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 that's that's not a thing. So uh, there, there, there's been other conservative sites. Before, I, I did have a list of them, but I can't find it as I record this, so fuck it. But Elephant Stamp, for the right stuff, for all of their really weird things and and generating an utter, utter failure. Hurrah! Earlier, I uh, mentioned the uh, the original text-based adventure game 
Advent, or to give it its full name, Colossal Cave Adventure. Uh, I, lo- I looked it up. It was uh, first written in uh, 1976 by Will Crowther for the PDP-10 mainframe computer, um, which which is a computer I actually know how to program. Um, not in 1976, mind you. Um, and it was, yeah, as I say, the very first of those text adventure games. These days, of course, uh, a PDP-11 mainframe computer can fit in any old web browser, so I have linked to uh, a place where you can just play it online by typing into a picture of a terminal, uh, and you can look and go left and right and be in a windy series of passages, whatever the line is. Old people know what I'm talking about. Speaking of old uh, computers, let me take you back to 1968, and in particular, the 9th of December. 1968. If in your office you as an intellectual worker were supplied with a computer display backed up by a computer that was alive for you all day and was instantly responsible, responsive, <laughs> instantly responsive to every action you had, how much value could you derive from that? Well, this basically characterizes what we've been pursuing for many years in what we call the Augmented Human Intellect Research Center at Stanford Research Institute. We're going to try our best to show you rather than tell you about this program. So that guy's Doug Engelbart. That is, as I said, 1968. And that's a presentation called The Mother of All Demos. It went for like more than an hour and a half. And that lab at SRI created and showed in this demo the computer mouse, hypertext, which you know we know from the web, click on a link and you get something else, network computers, and precursors to the kind of graphical interface that you've got on your computer today or on your phone. Um, everything about, well, maybe not everything, but so much of the, the modern metaphor for how you interact with computers came from that lab in the 1960s. And the thing he mentioned, like uh, augmentation research centre, what he meant by augmentation was augmentation of your mind, of your intellect, and indeed the the buzzwords uh, through the 1950s and 1960s in in what was called cybernetics, there's a, a whole thing which has taken on a whole new meaning today, uh, was intelligence amplification or IA, which is odd considering that these days we have AI for artificial intelligence. So the idea wasn't, wasn't that the computer itself would be intelligent necessarily, but that it would augment what we were doing with all sorts of materials um, that would make thinking faster, doing intellectual work faster. And in 1962, like six years before this demo, uh, Doug Engelbart wrote a paper called Augmenting Human Intellect, a Conceptual Framework. And he was trying to explain what they were trying to do. He said, look, we can't we can't show you these new tools we're building until we've built them. So we can't show you how they will augment your intellect. But what I can show you is how having worse tools 
makes it harder for you to work and communicate. So what he did is he got a pencil and he got people to write things with the pencil and recorded their behaviour. Um, and then he said, all right, let's take that pencil and we'll, we'll tape it to a house brick. Now write with it. And surprise, surprise, people had trouble writing. Their writing was slow. Their writing was was untidy. Um, they couldn't write for very long because, like, it was a fucking house brick, right? And they're having to move it round. Their arms were getting tired. So, obviously, intellectual work took a lot, lot longer. And I mention all this because for two weeks over the holiday break, I had the equivalent of, of taping a brick to a pencil in that I had the software I normally use uh, and operating on what was a, a, a seven-and-a-half-year-old computer, uh, a MacBook Pro, uh, quite a grunty one from that period, and instead tried to work on an even older, a 12-and-a-half-year-old MacBook Air. And I discovered very quickly that there was just a lot of work that I couldn't even do. Uh, and I know people say, oh, you don't need a modern, powerful computer to do the kind of work. And I said, well, i tell you what, if you're used to that, and in my case used to a, a years-old computer, going back to an even older one, boy, it slows you down. Here's, here's just one example. My website, like a third of the web, websites on the planet, runs on WordPress, a content management system, which many of you will, will know about. I could not run its current interface on that old computer. I mean, it was simply unusable. I'd, I'd load up a page, I'd, I'd start typing into a document I'd already created, I'm editing a document, I'm editing a new paragraph, and I'd type, you know, a, 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 a dozen words, and they would then take, 15 to 20 seconds to appear on the screen, one letter at a time. And by then, I am thinking D-I-D-I-M-A-K-E-A-M-I-S-T-E-A-K-O-H-N-O, backspace, backspace, back, how many backspaces have I... It was simply impossible. Um, it was weird, I must say, to, uh, to see what software could cope with minimal resources uh, and, and what simply couldn't. And some of it was quite surprising. So in, in an incredibly roundabout way, this is a way of saying thank you to the people who've just bought me and I'm recording on a brand new MacBook Pro, a 14-inch a M1 Pro model specs. You can go to the crowdfunding website. And to a friend who uh, floated me some money to allow me to buy it um, early before the crowdfunding campaign finishes. So um, please go to the 9pm edict.com slash refresh 2023. Yeah, that's why. Links on my websites, you know, how to find this. Um, but uh, it'll tell the story. It's been an adventure, let me tell you, because I thought I started the campaign early enough to give me time to replace the computer with ease. You know, gentle process, organised. Well, um, a couple of days before the start of the new year, that older computer, 
Uh, oh, it started throwing some incredibly weird faults. And I thought, yeah, I need to look at this. Opened it up. Oh, oh, look, the batteries have gone foot and inflated. And this computer is now potentially a bomb. So I took it to a fr- another friend's place. Uh, we defused the bomb. Uh, we identified some other faults that were like, yeah, this is, yeah, this is not worth salvaging. Um, so he loaned me this old MacBook Air, which is great. And we took the SSD, the drive, out of the old computer so we could put that on as an external drive on this one. So I still had access to all the data, (laughs) except that drive shat itself a couple of days later too. So I am a person who maintains a solid backup routine. I had two drives with, with nearly all the data on it, so I was kind of okay. I've lost about a week's worth of photos and some minor things. Um, I mean, nearly all of my volatile data is in the cloud, uh, except for things like audio files, because it's, you know, I'll generate several gigabytes of data while recording this podcast, and you can't just throw that up into the cloud and back as a quick backup. Not in Australia anyway, thank you. Uh, thank you, Malcolm. Love you dearly. Um, so there, there we are. Um, Augmenting intelligence. And, and something else will give you... How are you going to find this? Something else that influenced me from that period... Well, in 1974, a guy called um, Ted Nelson released a book called Computer Lib Slash Dream Machines. Now, Ted Nelson is the, the guy who invented the word hypertext. Uh, he's, he's mad as a cut snake because he wanted to tie this idea of hypertext in with automatic copyright citation and links would be two ways and money would automatically flow back and forth for this micro citation. Very, very, you know, he's American, right? But uh, Computer Lib was this, uh, Dream Machines, was this big paste-up kind of book, big format. It had two covers, like depending on which way you flipped it up. So uh, Computer Lib was, was, was subtitled You Can and Must Understand Computers Now and with lots of scribbled little diagrams, um, he explained how computers worked. And it's all over the place, but it was very influential. And the other side, Dream Machines, was kind of showing you what computers of the future might be able to do. And when we talk about, like, 1974 computer graphics... Um, it showed how you could render a picture of a sphere with a smiley face on it, on it with its mouth cut out, like a, 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 a three-dimensional Pac-Man. You needed a mainframe computer to generate images like that back in the, the first half of the 1970s. But he, he again, talked about hypertext and, and uh, the, the mother of all demos and the mouse and the link and windows graphical windows displays that xerox park were developing and and so on um and the foreword uh in the second edition was by stuart brand who went on to create the whole earth catalog which again old people will know um and it arrived just kind of at about the same time as the the altair 8800 kit one of the first inexpensive for the day kits to make a personal computer and connect to your television and a typewriter and all of that so that was that was influential and I got thinking about that as I say when I was 
trying to type one character a second uh, with with a ten or fifteen second delay uh, between that seeing the words on the screen. I also enjoyed some dramas of actually getting the computer to me uh, with um, a whole whinge about uh, how the couriers worked, but I won't go into that now because it's tedious and fucking boring. I just wanted to mention old things. What else has been in the news this week? Oh, yes, uh, Cardinal George Pell is dead. Yeah, I don't think we need to talk much about that. Everything's been written about that cunt already, I'll just say. Uh, Good riddance. Um, On Twitter's falling apart, but by the time you listen to this, anything I might say will be totally out of date. Just weird things are going on, as always, Twitter now, under under that, that, that fellow. Um, But I want to mention Bill Gates. Yes, founder of Microsoft, once the richest man in the world, now still in the top ten. He's been talking about this whole Web3 thing, which uh, is is essentially wank. Um, I mean, it's this mix of all of this uh, uh, digital currency stuff and Bitcoin and Ethereum and that, along with, oh, the metaverse, as if this is new. That's not what Web... Web 3.0 was about, which is why they're calling it Web 3 as one word. Anyway, Bill Gates says, now this is not revolutionary technology at all. He says, AI, artificial intelligence, is the big one. Quote, I don't think Web 3 was that big or that metaverse stuff alone was revolutionary, but AI is quite revolutionary. And I find it interesting he's talking about Web 3 and metaverse in the past tense already. Um... Going back to the end of 2021, Gates said that most virtual meetings would move from 2D platforms like Zoom and Teams to the metaverse within two or three years. But, I, but, but, but I'll add to that personally, why? Why, why would it? What value um, will be added to a fucking Zoom meeting if people can walk around in my virtual environment. I mean, the fact that Zoom only shows me from tits up, uh, not tits up as in falling over, but tits up as in that's all that's visible, top half of my body, um, that's good. That's helpful. I don't want people in, oh, I suppose it's a virtual environment so you can make it look like anything you want, but really, really, (sighs) I I think I've just tied a brick to my pencil, haven't I? No computer needs more than 64 kilobytes of memory. Uh, Anyway. Uh, Bill Gates also said uh, that cryptocurrencies and NFTs are, quote, 100% based on greater fool theory. Look that one up for yourselves. And to finish, the Chicago Tribune has a, a thing about Bitcoinism. Um, And it's based on what's happening in Croatia. So Croatia is going through the process of joining the European Union and becoming a full member. They are, at the moment, replacing uh, their existing currency, the Kuna, uh, with the euro. And uh, there's about 3 billion physical 
kuna around notes and coins adding up to a value of 3 billion kuna i don't know what the conversion rate is so that number's fixed now no more will be issued uh and all of the bitcoiners reckon well that means that the kuna can never again suffer from inflation uh because the kuna has become obsolete and no one will use it so it will therefore uh have its value have its value and will not suffer inflation any more than confederate dollars from the united states can now this is the Bitcoiners' view, that if you have a fixed amount of some currency, it will never inflate. In, in fact, it might even be deflationary as as the number of people using it goes up. Now, uh, the economist who wrote this story, uh, Draw Goldberg, uh, says this is a bit like a Confederate soldier in 1865 looking with despair at his dusty Confederate paper money but doesn't throw it away. A Bitcoiner from the future says, no, 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 keep that. It's going to be better money than the US dollar because that will surely become inflated thanks to your loss in the war. Now, maybe as a collectible, um, some paper money uh, might keep its value or go up as a collector's item because so much would have been destroyed or lost or, or whatever. But, yeah, as as a, as money money, the Confederate dollar stopped being worth anything in 1865. And the Kuna in Croatia is about to do exactly the same thing, or it will be once they go through the transition period. It's an interesting analysis. It's worth reading because it's based on history and it's written by an actual economist who who one of one of the actual economists who appears to be not insane. And uh, one of the lines in here, this is a lovely paragraph uh, to end with. For now, Bitcoinism is an amateur mix of intellectual arrogance, misunderstanding of basic economics, because not every asset is money, postmodernism, quote, gold is no more intrinsically valuable than Bitcoin, um, as an aside, no, of course it is, because you can actually do things with gold, like make jewellery and electrical bits and pieces and stuff. Um, and Bitcoinism, he says, is a new religion under its prophet, MicroStrategy's Michael Saylor, and a very volatile bubble. That is not a promising path forward. And that, dear Lister, brings us to the end of this episode. And if you listen to this and you're still with me and you're kind of... <laughs> no, it's not a very promising path forward into 2023 either, is it? Uh, thank you. Goodbye. Yes, that's the edict for now. Links and credits and all the stuff at the 9pmedict.com. Uh, please support the refresh thing. I've told you all about that. The next episode is just days away. Input for Elise Thomas by 9pm Monday night, please, the 16th of January. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.